Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmakers Show. So super excited with our founder today, you know, going from corporate to entrepreneurship. And right now he's he's built this rocket ship and we're going to be learning a lot about building, scaling, financing, all the stuff that we really love on this show. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Michael Bora. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So your family is originally from Puerto Rico. But you guys, uh, you know, settled uh, in, in, in New York, you know, quite early. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Sure. I mean, pretty typical, you know, child of immigrants type of story. I, everybody here, you know, my mom was first generation after her parents moved here from West Coast of Puerto Rico. My grandfather was a conductor on the subway. So that's sort of what we grew up with as a kid. My mom was a teacher in the public school system in New York. So, you know, when you're a teacher, you get summers off every summer right back to Puerto Rico. So grew up sort of splitting time between Sunset Park in Brooklyn, which is where we grew up, where I went to school, uh, and Mocan Aguadilla in Puerto Rico, which is where the family's from. Uh, but we had a great time. I have a younger sister. Uh, we were doing all that stuff together. Um, went to school in Brooklyn. Was fortunate that along the way, I got, uh, I got into a pretty darn good school in Manhattan that is scholarship only. So if you got in, you got a scholarship. And that was Regis. And so that was high school. So that was my first real experience leaving like the bubble of Brooklyn, going into this prep school world and having a totally different experience. But that really set me up for on the course for the rest of my life. And what was the, I know that school scene in New York City, they're insane. So was it like really tough to get into Regis? Yeah. I mean, it just sounds like bragging if I'm like, oh, yeah, so, so tough. I did it. But, you know, like interviews, tests, all that stuff. And that's, you know, it's on the circuit with things like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science and all the yeah. the other fancy, you know, public schools or schools that, that pay for you to go there. So it was a lot of work. I, I did all the, you know, like getting all the books and all the test prep as a kid. And education was a big deal in our family. I think everybody had the idea that, you know, our job was to be in school. And so our parents were providing for us, for my sister and I, to make sure that we were studying, paying attention, getting good grades, and taking it really seriously. And, you know, so far, so good. I said that worked out for both of us. I mean, so far, so great. Princeton and, and, and Harvard. So, I mean, I'm sure that your parents are very, very proud. Yeah. You know, I remember packing the U-Haul to go to school. And my dad's a pretty reserved guy. But I remember him, like, telling the neighbors, like, oh, we're packing it up. We're going to Harvard. We're taking them to Harvard. Now, did I mention Harvard? That's where we're going because that's where we're going. So <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty nice moment at the time to be like, oh, this is pretty cool. I get, you know, I'm the reason my dad gets to show off to the neighbors here. So that, that is a, a treasured memory of that packing up and driving up. And what about, you know, health policy? I mean, what got you into policy? Because I know that you did that also in Princeton, but uh, Harvard, you know, more specifically. Yeah. I think one of the things I realized early on, especially, you know, when you come from a family that doesn't have a ton of experience with the American healthcare system and how kind of ridiculous it can be, is that American healthcare is incredibly complicated. And a lot of that, you know, you've got people who have the best of intentions, a lot of amazing physicians, amazing healthcare workers who want to do the best by patients. But the system gives them really strange, perverse incentives to think about billing and volume over quality and outcomes. 
And to me, you know, when you're talking about the incentives people face, you're talking about economics because economics is really the study of incentives. So after college, I said to myself, you know, I don't, I don't think I want to be a physician necessarily, but I want to work in healthcare and I want to make the healthcare system better. And the best way for me to do that is to study health economics. So I, again, incredibly fortunate and got into a great program that they had at Harvard that would sort of spanned the medical school and the economics department where all we were doing was health policy, uh, sort of full-time focusing on the weird incentives that people face in healthcare. Everyone from hospital administrators to doctors to patients to the people who run insurance companies and thinking through like where were their opportunities to make an impact on that. Uh, it was also a pretty significant time because you know, the history of American attempts at healthcare reform are incredibly long. Like goes back to FDR tried to include healthcare reform and social security. Basically, every president you can think of had some idea about how to reform American healthcare. Very few of them went anywhere. But I was in grad school, you know, when this guy Barack Obama got elected president, and all of a sudden, one of the pillars of his campaign and one of the first things he wanted to work on was healthcare reform. So I actually, you know, early on in my PhD, took a break from the program, went to the White House. I was in the Office of Management and Budget, you know working in a small, very small capacity, like a small role working on being a liaison between the House of Representatives and the administration for the design of the Affordable Care Act, because this was the big time, like really, for somebody who cares about incentives and healthcare and the way the whole American healthcare system works. It's a pretty big moment to make an impact. So I got to do that sort of during the course of my academic career. It's one of the things I'm really proud of. Now, the stint at Harvard, too, was very productive, I would say, as well on the entrepreneurial side, because there you met David, uh, your co-founder, and, and, and obviously there is where you guys planted the seed for Sesame. So, so how did you plant that? How, what was that ideation incubation like? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I remember the day, really, going back, talking to one of the deans at the medical school who said, you know, she had just had this interesting conversation with this business executive, a guy who wasn't you know, really a, originally a healthcare expert, but had really thrown himself into healthcare for sort of the worst reason, which was that his dad passed away because of a medical error in a hospital in New York. And this was somebody who had had a really successful career, largely media and telecom, but over the course of really un trying to understand for himself what had gone wrong in his dad's case, really found himself drawn to healthcare and wanted to write a book about the experience. And he wanted to do that with somebody who could, you know, keep him honest about the data and the research and sort of what the economic literature said about what we know, what we don't know in healthcare. And I had been a management consultant before. I, you know, sort of used to working with CEOs and executives. So I was one of the people that they pinged about this and said, hey, why don't you meet this guy, David? See if you hit it off and see if you want to work together on this. And, you know, that sort of was the beginning of what is now a long working relationship. We worked together. I worked on research with him for the book that he wrote, which became Catastrophic Care, which is now probably, you know, in the bargain bin at Amazon, if you want to check it out, because it's been a while. And along the way, what we said to ourselves was, okay, American healthcare has changed a lot since the Affordable Care Act. Uh, a lot more people have health insurance now, but what it means to be insured in America is fundamentally different. Insurance is much less generous, and it has a lot less, you know, what we call first dollar coverage. So if you are an American with health insurance, you're likely spend more of your own money to pay for care. 
your premiums are higher, but not only that, your deductibles are much higher. So the amount of money you have to spend out of pocket before your insurance does anything is a much bigger number. And in parallel, all of these provider practices, so physicians, nurse practitioners, specialists, labs, imaging centers, you name it, increasingly they're dealing with more bad debt. So more times where they send the bill to somebody and because of the structure of their health insurance, the bill doesn't get paid. So we said, there's probably an opportunity here because most practices are pretty eager to take upfront payment and are willing to offer a discount if that means they can mitigate you know, all of the administrative expenses that go along with insurance billing. So what if we really aggregate that supply in one place? We can sort of take advantage of the technology that exists in almost every other marketplace but doesn't exist in healthcare around yield management, around dynamic pricing, and around providing the tools to these independent businesses to be able to sell to this type of customer, the, the price-sensitive healthcare customer. So we can build something to offer them better pricing, pretty broad selection. And again, this is not going to replace everything in healthcare. It's not a replacement for going to the emergency room. It's not a replacement for, in most cases, finding you know, an inpatient surgery. But you can do a lot just by you know, being mindful of what options are available to you and thinking about you know, comparing price, quality, and availability for practices local to you. And so then why, it sounds, it sounds like you guys had something quite tangible. I mean, why did you guys go back to corporate America? It's an interesting question. I think we wanted to watch the world evolve a little bit. And, you know, both of us were pretty happy doing what we were doing. Like, I'm, a, I'm an academic at heart. I'm a PhD. I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur, especially to start. You know, I grew into the role. You know, in McKinsey, I was, you know, engaging with executives all, all across the board. So I, I think ultimately also it came down to we just couldn't not do it, to use a double negative. Like the idea became so compelling to us that it, we said, like, I don't want to leave this opportunity on the table. This feels like the right time and it feels like the right idea. Like I would feel I'd regret it and I'd feel incredibly stupid if I didn't jump on this opportunity and take this idea and try to make it into something real. So it was really that like I ran out of excuses not to do it. And I think that that's what pushed me into it, saying, you know, if I don't do this, I'm going to kick myself. So then, obviously, you know, you had to give your notice at McKinsey, but, but how was that phone call where you, know, you call David and you say, hey, screw it, let's do it? You know, you know what's interesting about that? I remember we had taken a family vacation to Barcelona. And I talked to David and, you know, the hours were different and the t like the timing was all, you know, misaligned. And I said to him, like, I'm in. I will do this with you, but we need one more person. <laughs> You've got to call this guy, John Fontaine, who I you know, went to college with, we're both from New York. He is the absolute best person I know at actually getting things done. He is like an incredible operational leader. And John at the time was in Tokyo. So I was trying to organize these three-way calls between a guy in Barcelona, a guy in Tokyo, a guy in New York. And it was like impossible to get us on the phone at the same time. But I was like, David, if we're going to do this and we are now going to do it, we got to have John. Like he is going to be the missing piece to actually make this thing sing. And I still think that that's definitively true because those two guys met. Uh, John came back from Tokyo and we were all able to get together in New York when everybody was back there. But I will never forget, you know, 2 a.m. in a hotel room in, in Barcelona trying to like do a WhatsApp call with John or I don't even know what year it was. It was like, you know, Skype at that point or who knows. But getting everybody collected on one call to talk this through and explain like, hey, you two don't know each other but you're about to be best friends. Like we need each other to do this. This is the right crew to build something. I love it. So now for the people that are listening to really 
understand it. You know, what ended up being the business model of Sesame? How, how do you guys make money? Yeah. So Sesame is a pretty, you know, in lots of ways, pretty standard marketplace in that we work with, you know, both sides. We engage with clinicians who are independent all over the country to build out listings on this platform. And they are listed on the basis of their licensure, of their availability, of the services that they offer. And they can modify those and set their own pricing on the basis of, you know, time of day, day of week, time of year. So they can do that dynamically and reflect their value at any given time. Sesame, separate from what they charge, Sesame charges transaction fees. So it's very much a take rate on marketplace fees. And consumers use us to shop like they would for any other shoppable service. I think it's incumbent on us to both, you know, spend money on customer acquisition, make sure that we are informing customers as well as we possibly can about the variety of options and how they compare, how they should make their choices. But especially as when we started, we were doing predominantly just transaction fees on services. We started doing only in-person care. So the only things you could do on Sesame were um, seeing a doctor in their office, you know, getting a lab in the laboratory, imaging at the imaging center. We've since expanded to virtual care as well. So we've got a pretty robust telehealth business here that's now sits side by side and you can choose either option for most clinicians. We're also building out more membership models. Uh, so where you can have a membership to Sesame, the platform, and eventually have a membership to an individual medical practice or an individual clinician to really have them as your own doctor. So, you know, we, we make money based on take rate and now the memberships. We really think about it as a markedly more affordable option for most people who care about how much their healthcare costs. Uh, you know, we say it's, you know, it's half price, but whole quality medical care with actual prices upfront that you pay on the Sesame platform, you lock them in and you're guaranteed a rate. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in this case, you know, for you guys, you know, when you got started back in September 2018, officially with Sesame, the world was different. 
right? Because then, you know, you all of a sudden had COVID, you know, that kicked in and, and we went to more of a world where, you know, you would see like nurses and doctors on the front cover of, of magazines and newspapers, which was unheard of. How would you say that COVID has shaped up uh, Sesame and the way that you guys think about the business? It is incredibly different now than it was before COVID. I remember, you know, very stupidly sitting in the office and people asking like, oh, should we be worried about this coronavirus? Like, is it going to have an impact on everybody's lives? It's like, oh, you know, these things pop up all the time. You know, SARS, you know, lots of different diseases. I kind of doubt it. I don't think that we'll see a huge impact on this. I was dead wrong. So obviously we went from everybody working together in offices, we're in New York and in Berlin, to everybody working remotely. And that's just our office. What was much more important to the business was what it meant to get medical care in America changed immediately. So all of a sudden you had lots and lots of medical practices that were either saying, hey, we've got lots of availability, lots of open appointments, but nobody wants to come in because everybody's staying at home. Or you had lots of practices saying, we're not taking anybody in person. Like, no more in-person care. We'll do something on the phone or we'll hack together a Zoom or a FaceTime call to see our patients as to make sure we can keep providing care. And so when Sesame started, everything we did was in-person care, like I said. But we really you know, sat down with the team remotely over, you know, Google Meet and Zoom and said, look, this is a defining moment for this business. If we want to live through this pandemic, we need to create an incredibly easy to use virtual care option that can sit side by side in person care. So basically any clinician who wants to on this platform can offer both. They can say, you can come to my office, but if my office is closed or if you're not comfortable with coming to my office, we can do a video visit. So we put in the work. I mean, our team was, you know, 24 hours for weeks building out a fully functional, fully secure, so HIPAA compliant for American healthcare law, telehealth platform that could plug in and exist side by side with our infrastructure that we could schedule, that we could send people to the same way. It was really important to us that you could use it on any device. So we made sure that our tech did not require an app. You could use it on a phone, you could use it on a computer, on a tablet. And that we could have telephone backup. So if somebody's connection was bad or they weren't, you know, uh, tech savvy yet, we could do a full intake and, you know, a clinician could follow up by phone if that was the right path to meet them. And I got to say that was a huge unlock for us because pre-pandemic, you know, we had started off in a few different markets across the country, just in person. And during the pandemic, we scaled to the entire country in all 50 states in every market. We were able to do things like incrementally offer malpractice insurance through us to the clinicians who were using the platform so they could feel more confident that they could practice, you know, completely using this infrastructure and do telehealth. All of those were really, I mean, these things sound kind of obvious now, but they were the Wild West at the time. Even the idea of like, how does insurance work? How do we navigate, you know, making sure that these clinicians have what they need and can collect the right information from a patient to give good care. The pandemic forced a lot of that on everybody. And I think you know, there, there's a number from a study that I saw that something like 30 times more people tried virtual care during the pandemic than had ever tried it beforehand. And Sesame was really one of the biggest places people were doing that. We saw a lot of volume across the whole country and lots of clinicians who, once we built that infrastructure and once that, you know, Manhattan project for building out a full-featured telehealth platform was complete, said, you know, this is how I'm going to practice. I'm going to join this platform I, I'm all in. So let me use Sesame as my my home for finding patients. Now, for you guys, I mean, it's been quite a remarkable journey too on the 
capitalizing side of, of the business. I mean, you've done a few rounds. So walk us, you know, first and foremost, how much capital have you guys raised to date? So in total, as of the Series B, we've raised about $75 million. And obviously you've had, you know, heavy hitters, you know, coming in and investing like General Catalyst, uh, Google as well. So so give us a little bit of a walk through what has been that uh, a progress and transition from one financing cycle to the next. Sure. You know, when we raised our Series A, which is the round that's led by General Catalyst, uh, Joel Cutler, who's you know one of the founders of General Catalyst, joined the board. And I'd say, you know, the Series A, you know, we had some initial proof points, but it was really based on, you know, the idea and the vision and the people. So we could show that, yeah, people are willing to use this platform. They are, you know, they're, they're learning how to use the internet to shop for care in areas where that's possible. But we have a lot still to prove at the Series A. It was incredibly beneficial to have somebody like Joel join the board. Joel is somebody who built, you know, he built his own marketplace platform in Kayak and learned a lot. Obviously, he's built a million companies since then, has been on the board of a million companies. But he's somebody who had done it and who had taken this concept in another industry and also had tons of healthcare expertise. So that was a tremendous value add for us. It was something we were really excited about. I remember um, as we were negotiating the round, I was on the tube in London with my wife. It was like our first vacation since starting the company. And just, you know, sweating bullets, making sure that we get the round done, like every detail, making sure every I was dotted, every T was crossed, uh, that we were locked in because they were exactly the partner we wanted for the Series A. And it was such a relief to like land on, you know, get back in New York and be like, we're good. We, we have what we needed. So that was, that was huge for us. As the company kept scaling, you know, as we led, you know, through the pandemic, man, were we excited to meet, you know, Kathy Friedman, who's the new board member who joined and the team at GV. You know, formerly Google Ventures. Those folks, I think, also really got it. They've made tons of excellent healthcare investments. They were incredibly excited, you know, just like we are about the breadth of clinical services that are available on this platform. And, you know, you look around, it is a pretty tight fi fundraising environment right now. Like financing is not the same as it was last year, or, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic even. So it was a real thrill to get you know, our first choice, the exact people we want to be doing this with in GV on board. We've had amazing people join with them. So GV led the round, you know, Virgin Group uh, joined us, Telesoft joined, FMZ joined. Um, we've got a bunch of other folks who are with us who have been incredibly helpful. Coefficient Capital, Industry Ventures, Giant Ventures, AVG, the folks at Alumni Ventures. Um, an incredible group of people to work with, both those who are on the board, those who are observers, those who are not on the board feel very fortunate to have the backing that we have, like a lot of sharp, sharp people with incredible healthcare expertise, incredible marketplace expertise, who have helped us take this from, you know, an idea that was based around local in-person care to something that can really do everything across the country. And in this case, I mean, as you're talking about where you guys have taken things, just for the people that are listening to get a better understanding on the scope and size of Sesame today, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, I mean, I can talk a little bit about the growth. So hundreds of thousands of customers at this point that use Sesame and that come back to Sesame for repeat care. And we're growing quite a bit. So growing 25% month over month, revenues up, you know, 500% year over year. So utilization of this platform keeps growing, which we are thrilled about. Uh, thousands of clinicians who are listed, so independent practitioners who use the platform. And the team keeps growing. So across it's interesting, you know, like most companies, we weren't exactly thinking about this being a remote organization pre-pandemic, although 
we had a team in New York and we had a team in Berlin. And, you know, we still have folks in New York and still have folks in Berlin, but a lot of those folks have moved. So they live in Miami and they live in Portugal and they live in Boston. So it's very much a distributed organization now across the team. And we're learning how to live with this new normal, you know, work together without seeing each other face to face every day. And when you're building a marketplace like this, what would you say has been the most challenging aspect of the, of the business? Gosh, so twofold. One is, you know, any two-sided marketplace, you got to make sure you've got your sides in balance and that you are mindful about which one is going to be harder. Which one can you take some, you know, initial shortcuts to, you know, jumpstart liquidity on? Which ones are going to take more work? For us, we did a ton of legwork to get the initial roster of clinicians on board. And when you're starting something like, you know, the clinicians you're working with are the true believers, the people who are like, I believe in you, I believe in this idea, I understand that you're not going to send me a lot of patients immediately, but I want to grow with you. And uh, God, I'm so grateful to those initial clinicians who were largely in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, which was the first city where we really started building. Wonderful, dedicated clinicians, incredible doctors, uh, incredible partners who ran imaging facilities, labs, you name it, who understood what we were going for and recognized we could add value to their businesses. When it came to customer acquisition, we had a lot to learn. Uh, we hired a team and we built a team that had experience acquiring customers you know, in direct-to-consumer spaces. And so we knew, you know, what channels are sort of the defaults to think about. You know, when you think about online acquisition, are you going to do social? Are you going to do SEM? Are you going to do organic? Are you going to do partnerships? Are you going to do affiliates? You name it. But selling healthcare online and building trust with people, you know, for something as important as healthcare, that was new to everybody. So we did lots of experimentation particularly in that first market in Kansas City where we started, trying basically every channel you can think of to measure what conversion would look like, what, you know, how many eyeballs could we get on this product, would those people convert or not, and use that information to iterate and iterate and iterate. Lots of trial and error, lots of mistakes, lots of learning to say, where do we find the individual customer who can be a patient and use the Sesame platform and use it on a recurring basis? I feel really good about that team and the work they've done. They have built a real engine and our acquisition engine is something we're really proud of. But, you know, like any two-sided marketplace, we've put in a lot of face-to-face -face time with building the supply side, a lot of relationships with clinicians who we value extremely highly because they are the engine of this place. And then lots of work learning, iterating, testing, and developing customer acquisition strategies that are scalable for this business. And for this business, For Sesame, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision is fully realized. What does that world look like? So I think it's a world where anybody who cares how much their healthcare costs knows that they should look at Sesame as the first place to go. We, like I said, we think about ourselves as half price, whole quality medical care. And we recognize, look, some people have incredibly generous health insurance. And they say, look, I'm interested in convenience. Like, I'm not thinking about value or price. I would still love for those people to look at Sesame to understand who's available near them, what, like what's their availability, which clinicians, how can I make a decision, how roughly how much does that cost? But our sweet spot is anyone who cares how much their healthcare costs because they've got a high deductible, because they're uninsured, because they're between insurance, because you know they're just trying to save money. Sesame is the first place they go if they say, I need a doctor, I need a test, I need a lab, I need a procedure, you name it. We want to be top of mind for anybody who cares about the cost of care. Now, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and I was to bring you back in time, maybe to that moment where you were in Barcelona, speaking with your two co-founders and 
and trying to to envision you know a world where you were going to bring a solution and 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 really in the form of a company and imagine you were able to let's say join one of those conference calls that you guys were having at 2 a.m in the morning and here is your you know uh yourself now with the knowledge and everything that you have and and being able to go back and just joining you know one of those conference calls and and being able to give those three you know youngsters you know they're from, from a few years ago one piece of advice before launching a company what would that be and why given what you know now yeah we've we've learned you know so many things from four years in building a company the the number one thing i would say is be comfortable moving quickly with partial information and changing direction quickly so you know strong opinions loosely held are i think the most important philosophy for building a company is be bold choose a direction but know what will make you say we need to change this we need to stop this we need to do the other thing because that's what life is like as a startup. You, you might have a clear initial business plan and a clear initial idea of how the company is going to work, what you're going to sell, where you're going to sell it, who your customer is going to be. And you will learn very quickly how much of that was wrong and how much of that you misunderstood and how much of the market is really going to teach you who your customer is, how to make your product fit your market. Being willing to move quickly on those changes and take what you learn and implement it, that's the biggest thing. That's, that's why we're here. It's because we... You know, we didn't get too precious. We didn't say that any one idea had to be right because a lot of times we were wrong and we learned by doing, not by thinking. I love it. Now, Mike, for the people that are listening, you know, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Sure. I, I'd love to hear from anybody who listens to this. Please reach out. I'm on Twitter at, at Michael Botta, B-O-T-T-A. Send me a note and I'd be happy to chat. So if I can be useful to somebody who's thinking about starting something or would love to chat otherwise, I'm here. So. Twitter's probably the easiest way. I've got the got the bird on my phone. Whether or not Elon owns it, I don't know, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm around. Amazing. Well, hey, Mike, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Alejandro, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.